Hey, everybody. Hello, and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, joined, as always, by the Cal to my Ricky Bobby, Brandon. <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones yet. That movie is ridiculously funny. It is. That that movie is... Uh, multiple watch yeah, absolutely that's that's back in the day when anything that uh will ferrell did was uh, was pretty much a home run yeah <laughs> yeah yeah cool so what you been up to man not much just uh i enjoyed the taste of minnesota over the past weekend that was kind of cool a lot a lot of people but mm. kind of fun to be out and about how about mm-hmm. yourself how about yourself Spent uh, last week, the bulk of last week, up at the cabin with my 19-year-old son and four of his buddies. Uh, so a lot of bush light was consumed. <laughs> not that there was underage drinking. Not no, that I'm no, admitting no. to that. By I could have been by me. Yeah, all yeah, the bush light. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of bush light. I'm really into bush light. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah, we had a good time tubing, and they did a ton of fishing, and uh, we shot clay targets. Uh, yeah, it was fun. It it's was really a really fun. good time. Yeah, that's the way a cabins are supposed to be enjoyed up here. Yeah, and I got, uh, I can't share it publicly yet, but I got the cover for my next book, uh, and I am so in love with this cover. It's me in a canoe with Crosby. It was the, the photo was taken in the Boundary Waters. Uh, so soon, just follow wait. follow my social feeds, and as soon as I'm allowed to, I will uh, I'll post it. That's awesome news. I'm I'm excited to see it. That's really really cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. Well, it's super exciting. I got um, and this last week, uh, the the flush started airing, the new season, and so I. I saw on the schedule that uh, the episode I'm in, that's with where Scott Franzen went with me to South Dakota in January, I believe that airs on the Outdoor Channel the week of September 11th. All so, right. I mean, less than two months away. I wonder if it, I haven't seen it yet. I can't wait to see it. That means you'll be seeing yourself on TV in every bar for the next two months. <laughs> That's so true. That's <laughs> a, or like whenever there's a twins rain out, yep. your rain delay, you look up on the TV and there's there's an old episode of The Flush or, you know, Due North or whatever. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. I cannot. I am so jazzed to see that episode. And I it like it takes everything within me not to text Scott and be like, hey, finish the episode up yet. So... Maybe if he's listening, we'll then we'll find out. We'll find out if he if he listens to this podcast. If he sends me a text, to say, "Oh yeah, it's almost done" or whatever. Well, hopefully we can have like uh, some sort of like uh, viewing party or whatever at the, oh. the offices because uh, I know they've done that for several other episodes. That's yeah, I mean, I would love that, man. Cool. Or, or do it. Let's t- like show it at a out at a bar and have a pint night or something. It'd be fun. I'd be, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that one. It would be really cool. And your book might be the first book I've read in years. When <laughs> comes out, so that's, that's exciting. Maybe you can help me record the audio book, and then hey, and you you'll go. just listen to it as I. That'd be my preferred method. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Uh, so yeah, it's um, you know you we're in the hot and heavy, hot and heavy, muggy, buggy days of Minnesota July. Uh, looking forward to some thunderstorms rolling through because we need the rain 
and looking forward to water pouring down on the boundary water so the fire ban will be lifted by the time I go up there in late August. That's my hope. Yeah, that, that it, it changes things when you're up camping without fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you need the fire. Well, my guest today, Brandon, is a dear, dear longtime friend, Jeff Green. He is a professor of social psychology and runs the PhD program at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, and we talk about, well, I mean, one of the things I wanted to have Jeff on to talk about was because I, I know people who love their dogs. I have rarely known somebody who's loved dogs as much as Jeff. Um, and as a social psychologist, I wanted to ask him what it is exactly about the human dog connection. Uh, and I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast, a lot of hunters love their dogs and also have a working relationship with their dogs. So yeah, that was, that's what I wanted to talk to him about. And that's among the things we talk about, but I, you know, we don't really get into this in the interview, but I, it, it's hard to describe what an important role Jeff played in my life. Um, he was ahead of me at college, but he stayed uh, on campus to do some work for a Christian uh, organization that I was also involved with. And we roomed together in an old church, <laughs> an old decommissioned church that had been turned into uh, college apartments. Uh, we called it the rat hole because it was so nasty. It's since been torn down. But there's something, there's some like deep metaphor because Jeff is no longer practicing Christian. Um, I'm something different than I used to be at that time, post whatever I was, post evangelical for sure. And we, we, you know, we were rooming in this, as I say, decommissioned church. Um, I don't know. There's something like symbolic about that and about what our faith, uh, each of us, are, that our faiths were like when we were, you know, 19 and 21 or whatever. And, and now what they are at ages, I'm 55, he's probably 57. So it's, a, yeah, it, it's been a longstanding friendship. Um, I'm thrilled Jeff is actually going to be in town with his daughter, um, in August, and we're going to get to have lunch. We get to see each other every couple of years, but we keep in close touch. Uh, so he's a dear, dear friend, but also a super smart social psychologist. And uh, I think people will really dig the, the stuff we get into in this. So here's my conversation with Jeff Green, dear friend and professor of psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. As always, please Give us a like, subscribe, uh, share it with your friends, etc. We appreciate the support and keep on listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Thank you. Welcome, my old dear friend to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Thanks for having me. You're neither a reverend nor a hunter, so I don't quite know how you snuck on this podcast. Uh, we probably should set some ground rules about like no toothbrush stories. Okay. No uh, walk of shame, right to the uh, <laughs> to the public restroom stories. Should I say my name and how I know you? Well, I will have already introduced you in the intro with oh, with, I see. Okay. with with my with my producer. But why don't you tell us 
what, what, describe your field of study okay, and place yourself that way. I will have already, see, here's the thing. I will, I will record an intro with my producer, Brandon, and I'll get Mm -hmm. to say anything about you that I want and you will have no say in it. So then already, whatever you say now, the listeners will already have an image in their mind that I have painted for them (laughs) (laughs) and of our time together in the rat hole. Okay. Uh, All right. So um, I am a social psychologist and social psychologists don't have anything to do with counseling or therapy. They are close cousins to personality psychologists. In fact, we are, we go to the same conferences and essentially you put those two groups together to try to predict human behavior, thought, and emotion. So personality psychologists focus on the differences, sometimes genetic differences, temperament, uh, and, you know, differences, personality traits, social psychologists focus more on situational factors. Mm. So, you know, why does aggression go up in the summer because of temperature or, um, uh, we study emotions a lot. Um, uh, some of our popular topics would be prejudice and stereotyping, romantic relationships, group dynamics, mm-hmm. um, social influence, like conformity, compliance, obedience, aggression, pro-social behavior, I do work on emotions, uh, especially nostalgia and the self, um, how we protect ourselves from negative feedback, for example, hmm. and uh, close relationships. And a little bit of like we call positive psychology these days, which uh, is semi-social psychology virtues. So I've enjoyed doing research on things like humility, forgiveness, gratitude, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and also research on human-animal interactions which are incredibly important to us. Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but um, who are the people, are there people in your field who are kind of pop culture figures that listeners would have heard of? Like like Uh, is Brene Brown a social psychologist? I don't even, it seems like that's the kind of work she's doing, but that might not be her actual academic field. I think it's close. I I mean, I should know, but she, she may have a, a, a non-psychology degree, but honestly, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, um, uh, who's the guy that did the tipping point? Um, Malcolm Gladwell. Did he do the tipping? Yeah. He's, he's not a psychologist, but he steals all of our stuff and then popularizes Um, it. Yeah. So that, that's some of the stuff. I don't know if Jonathan Haidt is, um, but he's talking about this stuff. Yeah. He's gotten in there a little bit. Um, I should know some of the names. I think, you know, people who do work on mindsets, Carol Dweck's mindset research, mm. other people have studied grit. Um, so I don't mm-hmm. know if they're really at the top, but they're, you know, they have, they have their uh, Ted talks, you know, with millions of, of listeners. Right. And like so <laughs> yeah. uh, I think we have a, a slate of folks that are, you know, somewhere in there, but not necessarily at the very top. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, now th- I mean, you and I, even before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, 10 different issues that are pre- that we each feel strongly about. And you and I have always had that. I mean, I think we've always had just a lot. Whenever we get together, when we live together, and then less frequently when we get together these days or even talk this way, we just have a lot in common or a lot to talk about and a lot of interests that overlap. And I don't, you know, I have like anybody, so many friends with dogs. I have tons of friends with dogs. And a lot of people post pictures of their dogs. And I may be like making this up 
um, ex post facto, but I sensed like when I would see you posting on Facebook about your dog or hear you talk about your dog um, when we got together, whatever. I was like, this is different. This, this guy has a deeper relationship with this dog. And I, that's how I feel about myself and my own dogs. Um, yeah. I've been reading Jim Harrison, who's cause I've been, you know, listeners know I've been writing a book about the spirituality of the outdoors. And like one of the goats of that kind of writing is a guy named Jim Harrison, who is this crazy Hemingway-esque figure with like blind in one eye from a bottle fight he got in with a girl when he was seven years old and chain smoking and drank like one or two bottles of French Bordeaux every single night and crazy guy. Okay. But brilliant writer. Like, of course, that's what you have to be to be a brilliant writer. I've realized you have to be an absolute madman. Okay. So (laughs) thus I will never be a brilliant writer, but he wrote toward the end of his life. And then whenever anybody would ask him, how old are you or whatever, he, he would say, "I, I no longer measure my life in years, but in past hunting dogs. So that got me thinking that each of these three dogs in my adult life has represented a very important chapter in my life. The first dog, and I write a whole chapter about this in the book. The first dog is literally walks out the door with me on the night I get divorced, like follows me out the door, gets in my truck and drives away. And then I have to put him down a couple months later because he's old and sick and whatever. Then the next dog is with me uh, through Albert is like through my rebuilding tent decade, you know, and now Crosby. So we're not here to talk about me and my dogs. I'm just saying, I'm, I wonder if your dog didn't play a similar role for you. And then I, I definitely want to get into not only your story, but then why do you think we're so in love with dogs and yeah. then our relationship to other sentient beings, etc. Okay. So I'd love to hear about you. How'd you fall in love with this dog? Yeah. You know, it's, um, in a way, I don't know. I, I know that growing up, so I'll talk about two two little moments growing up. And you know my parents, so you can yep. picture some of this. So when I was really young, we were still living in Chicago. So I had to be kindergarten, first grade. We had a Scottish Terrier. And then then we we didn't have it. And I have not that many memories of that era of my life. But at some point, it just became too much. Maybe it was my little brother came along or something. And, but I do remember my parents saying, well, we were having trouble taking, taking care of it. So, you know, somebody else adopted it for us or something. And I remember thinking as a very young child, some guilt, like thinking like, Hmm. does that, was I not pulling my weight or something? So I don't know, maybe there'd there'd be a Freudian sort of guilt thing in there. Um, I don't remember really having a bond with the dog. I think the dog was kind of barky, but you know, just a little Scottish terrier, but it was, it was a dog. Mm -hmm. So Fast forward to high school, I made this dramatic plea early in high school at the dinner table about why we would uh, have a dog and I would take care of it and everything else. And I was, uh, I thought, very eloquent. And the next morning, my parents came back and they had been to the pet store and they pulled out two chinchillas. (laughs) (laughs) And there couldn't be any animal more unlike i mean these things had no personality the only thing interesting they did was they would 
They would spin around in a in a little box of dust to clean themselves. Are they um, like what's a chinchilla? Is it like a? It's kind of like a, a long skinny hamster. What is it? Yeah, it's it's bigger. So oh, it's, it's bigger, it's like a guinea pig. Guinea pig sized, incredibly <laughs> soft. So it's kind of nice to pet. Oh but yeah, they just they just <laughs> sort of sit around. <laughs> And I had I had no interest in the chinchillas. I don't remember taking care of them. I don't think they needed that much work. But maybe I was already sort of like only a year or two or three from college. Um, but my my brother, I think, you know, then took care of them. So, um, so that was a big fail. Um, oh my gosh. So it it took me fifteen years to get a dog. I always liked dogs and loved you know hanging out with friends' dogs. And so in my my last or seventh year of grad school. Um, I moved far away. I was able to walk right to the psych department in Chapel mm-hmm. Hill. And so now I moved far away. I mean, far away, five, five, six miles out um, just to get a dog. So, to, you know, you know pet friendly um, apartment complex. And uh, yeah, I just went out in the, you know, some rural area of North Carolina, picked out uh, one black lab male out of a dozen puppies. Mm-hmm. And um you know, I, I can see the picture in my mind of holding, like, you know, when I picked, I picked him because he had a little crooked tail. So I could recognize him and he seemed pretty lively, but not too crazy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, it was, it was him and me. And that was my last year of grad school. And within that year, um, you know, I graduated, I got my first faculty job. I started dating my future wife or future ex-wife, I should say, maybe. Um, and so, yeah, so he he was there with with all these transitions, um, moving from North Carolina to California and then back here to to, to Virginia. And um, I bought I've only bought two houses in my life, both of them for him. You know, I bought, hmm. I bought two. Um, I got cul-de-sacs both places. Um, so tiny front yard and, and big backyard. Um, in Southern California, it was a fifth of an acre, but that was big for there. Yeah. But then I have a pond and a creek uh, here in in uh, semi rural uh, suburb of Richmond, uh, and so perfect for labs to swim in mm. and get in trouble. And um, and Indy would uh, chase deer, uh, freak out with the beavers. You know, look like some giant squirrel was was swimming in our creek. Uh, one time, he found a duck egg's nest. He grabbed the egg in his mouth and just made a beeline for the house just he, he found this little treasure yeah, and take yeah and and you know they have such soft mouths it, it made it intact to the house but then i had to very carefully get it out and and return it um so yeah india and i and i named him after my favorite uh movie character from high school indiana jones green was his full name um but yeah just from the beginning we we just had fun together and walked all over the place. He was very active, and mm-hmm. um, I just felt like I had this this close bond with him. And you know, in retrospect, I do think about things like um, you know maybe he helped me be a little bit better in relationships, a little bit more open. Uh, so you know, we could talk about um, how we view dogs in terms of like relation, you know, and, and how some people I think um, might replace human relationships to some extent with Mm. pets Mm. um and but other people would use pets especially dogs to meet other people so yeah it's it's a fascinating uh relationship and it's a burgeoning area of research now too not just psychologists but you know sociologists anthropologists etc yeah i've um you know for that chapter on dogs in my book i did some research and you know there are these theories anthropological theories about the gradual domestication of wolves and how maybe um, 
you know that this this is a unique uh interspecies partnership dogs and humans there's not there's none other like it which right. leads anthropologists some to think you know maybe dogs are like maybe dogs are the reason that human beings or homo sapiens uh dominated over neanderthals like we're homo sapiens are still here neanderthals aren't that's fascinating and, yeah and then also um do, do you know about this 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 muscle that dogs have that wolves don't have there's there's a tiny muscle on on the upper inner eyelid of a dog that a wolf doesn't have that makes a dog i mean it gives the dog the ability to make the kind of sad puppy face to lift their upper inner eyebrows right okay. in ways that wolves can't yeah and so this is some like gene genetic mutation right that helped some wolf Makes dog them look prototype get a leg up on the other right. wolf dogs look and a little more a little human a little more vulnerable yeah so that maybe jump-started this co-evolutionary process where we're shaping them and they're shaping us that's interesting yeah and then these as these wolf dogs got closer and closer to camp they kind of the human they, they relied on the humans to help them find food but then the humans were able to sleep longer because these wolf dogs were you know kind of guarding the camp at night interesting and this is one of the other reasons maybe our brains grew because of this extended sleep that and neanderthals didn't have that protection huh. and that okay. this is why oh so anyway i mean there these are theories but yeah well and then but now that we have them in our beds we get worsely because yeah I mean, that's... We're, we're shoving over our hundred pound dog to like give me a little room like there I there are funny cartoons or memes or whatever of like um you know the uh, uh dogs evolved from wolves and then it's like a picture of a wolf like tearing apart some animal and then it's like somebody's pug with a bow on you know a bow in their <laughs> right. ear yeah. And like a bow tie on and in a little bed with you know getting a treat or something right. like that. Yeah. How far um, they've come. So I wonder if you can say like first I'd like to talk about other animals too and how, how you place how, how you understand this human self vis-a-vis -vis other animals. But let's stick with dogs for a bit. Do you think there is I mean I know you have your own personal story but do you think from a psychological or so social psychological standpoint, there's a uniqueness between that dog-human relationship? And if so, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, I think there is. I think a big part of it is what you already mentioned, this, this co-evolution that I think – you know, they, they're designed in some ways to, to support us and be loyal to us. Um, and, uh, they, they serve a number of functions, but I, I think, and certainly I think if you go back 50 or a hundred years, most of the dogs were living outside in the barn, you know, so right. some of these processes are, are more recent. Um, and yet they, they have that capacity, you know, to, they do form these, these attachments to us and vice versa. And, uh, I guess I'll, uh, mention my own research a little bit from the yeah. lens of, of attachment theory, because I think that the, some of the findings we found, um, you know, we've, we've did some work on cats too, but I think dogs are really special. So attachment theory is about uh, emotional bonds 
And uh, it started as a developmental psychology theory of the emotional bonds that that caregivers, you know, meaning parents, form with their infants who are completely helpless, uh, unlike a lot of other mammals. And so there, there's these interlocking behavior systems that, you know, when a, a baby cries, we we go towards it. Uh, and the baby looks incredibly cute and, and we want to we cuddle it, et cetera. And just about 30 years ago, some social psychologists said, well, could, would that speak to adult relationships? And so they they took this theory and they found that um, people have these same tendencies, the tendencies that they had as children, um, they have as adults, and that affects the romantic relationships. And so there's two main dimensions of attachment. One is anxiety. And so the theory is, you know, if your parents were kind of inconsistent, emotionally supporting you, you if you weren't quite sure, you know, are they going to, you know, come for me when I cry or not, mm-hmm. then you would get anxious. The, I think the research is mixed where it comes from. Maybe it's more temperament because, for example, we might have siblings that have kind of a different attachment style or attachment characteristics. Uh, but one is sort of an- anxious versus secure. Um, but the other one is uh, called avoidant. So the other dimension would be avoidant versus secure. And so people mm. who are of avoidant attachment style tend to be uncomfortable with closeness. They tend not to disclose. Mm. Uh, when they're when they're stressed, they tend to isolate rather than seek support. They're also not very good at, at, at sort of providing support for their partners. Um, so they they they're more likely to be workaholics, for example. Um, yeah more likely to be loners, et cetera. So, so you have these two different dimensions and usually there's like a primary, like people are primarily avoidant or primarily anxious or primarily uh, secure. So we started asking a bunch of questions about, well, how do we see pets? Do we see them along these attachment dimensions? And also do these attachment um, dimensions, could that affect how people um, choose their, their pets or, mm. or think about pets, for example? Um, so so we asked people, like, you know, what are dogs like? Are they anxious or avoidant or sugar? And dogs are basically seen as very positively and seen as sort of secure, you know, like they're they're comfortable getting very close, you know, just hopping in bed with us. And uh, you know, what you see is what you get. They don't, they're not game playing. Cats are seen as a little more uh avoidant. Uh, of course, that's the stereotype here. And um and uh the, the interesting thing about dogs is that um we and some other researchers would ask. Uh, like how secure do you feel with your romantic partner? How secure do you feel with your with your dog? And people basically perceive relationships with their dogs or with dogs in general to involve less avoidance and less anxiety. In other hmm. words, like <laughs> the the real relationships that you can count on are are with your dogs. You know, you're yeah, they're not going to leave you. You know, they're not <laughs> they're going to be consistent. You can count on them. Um, it's not just the bones that they give you that you give them. Um, and so we thought that was just fascinating that um, that we see dogs as more secure and that we're just we're attracted to those relationships. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it may sort of help make up for some deficits in human relationships. If I can't count on my romantic partner or if I'm single, then then a relationship with a dog might really provide some some security yeah. and constancy for me. Um, I'm guessing that the results of attachment to chinchillas was statistically <laughs> insignificant. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, fish. Uh, you know, I know birds have, you know, kind of personalities. My, my yeah, bird loving yeah. friends. So, no, but there's um, nothing like a dog. Yeah, um, it's the complexity that dogs have, I think. That even cats, you know, I've uh, and I, I've 
interestingly, almost every bit of research I've done, I've done with some at least one or two cat people just for balance, you know, because I I don't want my my extreme yeah. love of dogs and my hostility towards cats to like shape my my research. You'll never get invited back to an academic conference because there's a lot of them who have cats. I'm quite right. sure. That's fascinating. What do you, there's um all, all sorts of research that like owning a dog is connected. Well, owning pets is connected to longevity, but particularly dogs. But I think all pets, right? Don't all pets increase longevity? It's correlational too. So, you know, like if you've got a debilitating illness, you can't, you know, go get a, a pet. So I mean, that's oh. not necessarily causal, but I, I think it probably, you know, more directly, certainly there are emotional benefits and other benefits. If you have a dog, you get outside more. So I think you get more exercise. So yeah, I I think I think there are a number of of tangible benefits. I think there's either through longitudinal studies or other kinds of uh, sort of non-correlational um kinds of research, they have been able to establish to some extent some causal links there, which is really mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. So, um in general uh you know, most of us probably think of our relationship to the rest of the animals Frankly, even I think people who aren't practicing Christians, probably most people generally think like almost theologically about where the human being is in the order of creation, right? In the created order. And I've been giving a talk recently trying to deconstruct the uh, medieval great chain of being, you know, where it's God at the top and then the angels and then like the Pope and the king and then the priesthood and then the rest of us and then the animals and then the plant life and then the minerals and rocks at the are at the okay. and then hell is under that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a very durable kind of mental framework for people. Yeah. You know, God yeah. is up, we're down, this kind of thing. It's hard to shake, even when you say to people like, we're in this expanding universe. There is no such thing as up or down. And what's right. up for you is down for the Christian in Australia. So is he supposed to yeah. bring down to God, you know? So, and I guess the idea of, you know, ultimately, you know, I, maybe what arguably what every religion has in common is, is there's something beyond this life. And so there's something for more humans. Than, yeah. Our, our physical bodies. Yeah. And so then the big question is, you know, you'd have to convince me a lot like that chinchillas have a soul or, or that this ficus plant has a soul. But then when you start, you know, getting to these animals that are more complex cognitively, and then especially that we start to have these emotional relationships with, mm. you start thinking like, or, you know, I I would think the tendency a little bit, but again, that would vary according to your religious background might be to, you know, I want my dog to to live on, you know, and, and so, um, well, let's, I, I mean, that, that's, what's interesting because dogs are one thing, but you, mostly people don't think that way about other animals. Right. And right. They, they draw a line, they draw some kind of line and, um, you know, they draw a line a lot of times between a, a dog has a soul and all dogs go to heaven, but yeah, nobody's yeah. like every cow that we kill to make hamburger out of is also waiting for us in heaven. <laughs> right, right. No, nobody's arguing that. Seriously. Yeah, and, and we've got some explaining to do. Yeah. yeah. But um I'm a Calvinist when it comes to cats. I believe that uh all cats are are predestined to hell. Um <laughs> but again, so now I, now we've lost the cat the cat followers once again. I, but it's okay, Jeff. It just it's my fault, not yours. How many how many listeners do you think I have who are cat people? 
I mean, there may um, be people who have like dogs and cats, but I don't know. Right. A, talk, speaking of statistically insignificant, it would be okay. my listenership. That's like, I'm really, I don't like dogs, but I'm really, really into cats. I would guess. Yeah. That's very right. Simple. I take um, my ocelot out to <laughs> ocelot out to hunt with me or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but when I say theologically too, I think like that human beings have some kind of dominion over every other species. Yeah. Right? And we act like we do. I mean, there's no right. other large mammal that has 8 billion, you know, that yeah. needs 2000 calories a day to survive and <laughs> however many square feet every human being needs, you know, it's just, we're right. just unique in that way. So even the theology explains that uniqueness by saying we have dominion, we have rationality, they don't. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering when you have thought about this, the the human idea of self and connecting that to your research on our relationship with animals, like what's a social psychological definition of what makes humans unique and what makes humans just another animal in the, in, in the cosmos? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the self researchers uh, talk a lot about, um, this kind of self-reflexive consciousness, you know, so we, we know that we're separate from the environment. And the, the really interesting thing is that, um, you know, great apes and chimps have some of this. So, for example, just at a, a basic idea of your physical self-awareness, they, they anesthetized some chimps and gorillas, and they would paint an eyebrow and an ear red. And then they'd wake up and they'd look in the mirror and they, they touch those things. And so that, that was, so there's two things. So first of all, these animals realize like, hey, that's me in the mirror, right? Uh -huh. They're not yeah. some, you know, some dogs, I think, bark at their own reflection, think it's another dog. Um, and they also realize that there, there's been a change. So um, so they, they there's some certain cognitive abilities uh, there. Now they're, you know, I'm, I don't want to talk about gorilla self-esteem and stuff like that. So there's, but there's can not we, that sort but, of deeper levels. But can we use the term consciousness? In a way, I think so. in a way that we wouldn't with a mosquito doesn't have any consciousness, but I think so. Those yeah. might be and markers of consciousness, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, we humans keep underestimating uh, many kinds of animals. So with, with dolphins, you know, we first we said it's just the gorillas and chimps that might have some primitive language abilities, and then like, well, maybe it is parrots and maybe dolphins too. We just didn't realize, and and then like, oh, we're the only ones that that um, can problem solve. And then, and, and then you realize, well, no, you know, other animals can do that. Even crows, you know, have this some sophisticated planning, maybe octopi. So I think there's a consciousness you can talk about. And interestingly though, I, I, I don't think you can put dogs there. So it's not like right. a cognitive thing, you okay. know, and okay. we anthropomorph, I mean, we anthropomorphize all the time and I, and I do it too, even though I know the research, like, I feel like, my, my dog definitely has a personality, you know, my dog, like, so I can take the big five personality traits. That's the, the most kind of well-supported uh, empirically sort of personality approach or test. So, you know, I can say, well, this, this dog was introverted. That dog was extroverted. This dog was open to new experiences. That dog wasn't, this dog was high on neuroticism. That dog was low, but in terms of like a self, you know, like, um, you know, the, my dogs can't describe them to their own personalities. And nevertheless, we still form these bonds, I think, because yeah. of these behaviors, because of their loyalty. Um, so, yeah, so there doesn't need to be a certain 
kind of IQ or or cognitive problem okay. solving ability. It's it's more I think of this this emotional bond. And yet still they're they're advanced animals enough that there's there's a variety of behaviors and and you know they do I think they can feel happiness and sadness. I don't think they feel like shame and guilt and pride. These more self-oriented emotions. Okay, wait, slow down, slow down. You blew right through those. Okay. Tell me the difference. You just categorized emotions. Right. And and what what silos are you putting those into? And because because uh, this is a debate Courtney and I've had. I bet a lot of people who own dogs have had this debate. Like, mm-hmm. does your dog love you? I'm like, not. I mean, yes, but no. If right. I stopped feeding my dog, he would go leave and f- try to find food somewhere else, you know. Yeah. Um oh, he's so happy. I'm like, dogs aren't happy or sad. They're just reacting to stimuli. <laughs> around yeah but yeah tell me break those down for me tell me i'm wrong okay yeah i mean i think ultimately we're never gonna know you know we can't ask well this is all speculation but it's good fun speculation yeah it it really is so so i think there's a continuum of emotions that many most psychologists would suggest that you have some of these more basic emotions that you see in at least a few other animals. I think it's most readily seen in in like great apes and chimps. Like I, I remember going to the zoo and getting a close up look at a gorilla, and this you know that gorilla looked you know pretty happy. It looked like he was smiling, and but that gorilla looked angry. You know, and the angry face was the same angry face that you made. You know, when when you lived with me uh, on occasion. So um, I think. I think there's some of these emotions that might be more simple, like not really in cognitively cognitively complex mm-hmm. and um, sort of maybe more evolutionarily basic. And I think um, have, most people would say uh, happiness, sadness, anger, disgust um, would be some of the, the basic ones and fear. Uh, and then sometimes surprise, though I think fear and surprise kind of overlap. Now, those um, those emotions also happen to have fairly universal facial expressions. I think there's a little bit of a debate on that. It's it's not completely universal. But for example, if I asked you to show me, you know, or imagine when you were angry, imagine when you were scared and like took your picture of your face, took it to some culture that's basically isolated, you know, mm-hmm. so they're not influenced or, or uh, by media they would be able to decode those emotions and then we could do the reverse and, and there would be very high overlap. Okay. Certainly they're cultural display rules. And so sometimes, um, but I think they're there. So in other words, I never saw anger when I lived in Japan because everyone was so polite, except when the businessmen were drunk late at night. And if they didn't like foreigners, they would yell at me in Japanese. And I, I, so, um, but then there's another class of emotions that we often would call self-conscious emotions where I think you have to have a self. And so these are a little bit more complex, more cognitive, and they definitely do not have a universal facial expression associated with them. So like, if I asked you to like, show me guilt versus shame, you know, no. like those, there's, they're very much overlapping. Yeah. If I asked you to show me pride, you would probably lift your head up and throw your shoulders back. So there'd be a little bit of a body posture, but you're purely the facial expression. I don't think there's like a pride that you can clearly differentiate from just kind of general positive emotion. Okay. Uh, And so most of those self-conscious emotions have something to do with, um, you know, some kind of expectation or benchmark, you know, so shame is more of a like, People usually call shame like like I feel like I'm a bad person. I sort of I, I feel like shrinking. 
Um, I, mm. I did uh, more guilt is more, I did a bad thing. And often yeah. guilt research on guilt is it, it's, it's more of an approach emotion. It kind of motivates you to make repairs. You know, like I feel guilty because I blew you off. So like, let me make it up to you. Shame seems to have more, be more dysfunctional, just like I'm a bad person. I want to withdraw instead mm-hmm. of trying to fix things. Um, and then pride is kind of the opposite of like, I, I, I did something and I, I reached a personal goal or I, I was consistent with my parents' moral code. And so I feel this, this pride. And so that's a, that's a lot trickier than just like, oh, I'm, I'm angry because, you know, you stepped on my foot or I'm scared because, you know, there's a bear coming out of the woods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You did mention disgust and, uh, you know, I, every time I see a dog, my, one of my dogs eat their own poop. I think, no, these dogs don't feel any disgust. <laughs> right. Thank, thank God for the human disgust mechanism <laughs> that we, something deep within us knows you don't eat your own poop. In fact, you don't eat any poop. Just don't right. eat poop. How about that for yeah. rule, dog? Let's just, don't eat yeah, poop. let's just be. Let's just be conservative. You know, I mean, Darwin actually wrote about that. Um, He wrote a little book on the expression of emotions in man and animals. So he got the ball rolling and he just said disgust is basically the throw up face. You know, you're trying to expel something noxious. And so, you know, you make that face and and you're right. Like you can see that in chimps and gorillas. But, like, you know, I don't recall seeing disgust in a dog's face. But even Well, I guess maybe that's why they do hurl feces at each other, because they think it's disgusting. (laughs) But a dog would be like. That's the appetizer. On. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Throw me <Open> more. Wide. <laughs> it's like we're throwing grapes at each other's in each other's mouths. Oh, yeah. We feel gosh. the disgust when we, we're prying their mouths open and trying to like shake that thing out of them. Well, this is the other thing. I've had both a wildlife biologist and a vet tell me I would never let a dog lick my face because I know what I like. I, I had to do labs on dog tongues, you know, when I was in school. <laughs> so and yeah we're all like french kissing our dogs you know right right yeah i mean i'll do it right after my dog runs back to me with a dead animal in its mouth like i shoot a pheasant or what to shoot a duck and oh you know hug the dog and it's yeah it's embarrassing yeah i feel like the boundaries eroded and like even more of my second dog than my first dog of like you know i would see a a friend or relative you know go wash their hands after petting my dog like that I, you know, I would never even dream of that. We're just, we're just kind of the same, same being to some yeah, extent. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's, there's some interesting research on, um, uh, I'll probably screw it up, but like, like the, the gut, what is it called? The biome, like basically all the, the yeah. healthy critters in our gut and, and just the fact that we have people that have pets. I think the research was if you had more than one pet, you actually had a, a better immune system. And so in 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 some, if you get down to the microscopic kind of organisms, uh, we, you know, we have this we're, we're this ecosystem with yeah. us and our pets and and these um, these bacteria, which is really wild. Yeah, that's I I mean one of the things that I've come to I guess is and you've proven it again today with just saying you know everything from dolphins to parrots to crows you know to draw drawing that line of consciousness like drawing lines anywhere in the created order is very difficult so drawing a line you know i remember somebody once uh i had a little theological insight i can't remember when how old i even was but somebody was like the the thing about being created in the image of god 
is that that's rationality. That's like us being smart, smarter than all the other animals. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what about the person with Down syndrome? Are you telling me they're not creating the image of God? And Mm -hmm. I remember I was like one of my first little theological gotchas in my whole life. And I remember whoever I was with, the face just dropping like, oh, oh, yeah. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, you you know, it's your, it's our intelligence that makes us. So, again, like. And and of course, the science is always going to change and evolve. And so, you know, all this in the abortion debate and so many other, other big issues that, right. that you know there's as we learn new things about humans or any other species then you know we we have to rethink our overly simple categorizations yes and and these and even like then the, because some people um oh i won't i'm a vegetarian because i won't eat sentient life and that's like that's another very tricky line to draw between sentience and non-sentience right yeah yeah so um I'd like to circle back to uh, the the personal a little bit and talk about the grief that you, I mean, the grief that we experience, you can say as human beings when our dogs die, but I'm more interested, frankly, in the grief you experienced because I know it was heavy grief and I've been there and, but also not just the grief itself, but, but as then as a social scientist thinking about it and, processing your own grief tell me about that okay yeah so uh so i've i've lost two dogs uh and the second one was just about 10 weeks ago um my first dog uh indy lived to be about 12 and uh it was i it was absolutely the hardest thing i've gone through uh in terms of in terms of grief um, and it, it lasted sort of is pretty, pretty serious for a few weeks. It happened to be near the end of our spring semester. So we were fortunate that we, we, we literally escaped. So my wife found, uh, a deeply discounted three week trip to Turkey. So, so we just left, but I, I packed a whole bunch of little rawhide sticks and, uh, we, we there's this photo collage of me you know, giving treats to 20 dogs, most of them just sort of running loose on the street, you know, yes. maybe owner. So I was, I was sort of touching base with, with dogs. Um, uh, and yet out of my overly quiet, uh, but cleaner house, uh, at the time, but, you know, I, I, I had lost, um, trying to think of the timeline. I think I'd lost at least one grandparent, but, you know, we just, I just didn't see them that often. I fortunately haven't lost any, any closer relatives. Uh, but you know you you just have these these rhythms you know with your pet and i felt like um i was thinking about this for my 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 second dog lily that there's just sort of this constant dog consciousness or dog awareness and you have it with your kids especially when they're young where you just you have to know where they are but you know mm-hmm. if they're so young they can fall down the stairs but with my dogs you know it was almost more and then as as my my daughter got independent. I stopped sort of having that. Well, she, you know, she's on her own. I don't have to think about if she's hungry, she'll tell me, but the dog, like I always know the last time the dog ate and mm-hmm. drank and peed and, you know, where she is, both my dogs were not mm-hmm. clingy. You know, they wanted to be within one room, but they didn't follow me and have to be right close to me. Um, but they wanted to sleep, sleep in the bed with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, when I lost Lily, um, I had like six months in between these two dogs. I had like 23 years 
uh, only six months without a dog and now another couple months. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, it's a simpler life. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about her health because she did have liver disease for a while, but it's, 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 there's always something kind of missing. You know, there's that, that whole schedule of the morning walks and going mm-hmm. out and feeding her. Um, often she just kind of ate on her own until this liver disease sort of threw everything out of whack. Um, and, uh, and so the, the grief hasn't been as bad for my second dog. I can't explain why. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. sort of on the heels of my divorce. And yet she was with me through the hardest 12 months, like a lot of contentious, uh, I mean, not so much contentious, but like a lot of uncertainty about custody for months and months and months that that, mm-hmm. that like kept me up at night for hours and hours. Uh, but and, and so the house was suddenly, you know, more than half the time completely empty, except for Lily. She was there. She helped me. And so luckily she, she stayed with me through the hardest times. Mm. Um, but then, um, you know, it'll be strange times. Like when I come back from a trip, she gave the great greatest full body hugs, you know, she would just jump up upon each shoulder, uh, and just maul me, you know, yeah. and I would let her do that. If I picked her up from the, from the, the kennel, when we, we kenneled her or just, I come in the house and she's there. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I, I have been using my biggest research area is nostalgia. And so I've been using mm. that to kind of help with the grief, just thinking back, watching videos. And, and certainly there's a nostalgia is bittersweet. You know, there's, there's yeah. some sadness too. Um, but it's more sweet than bitter. Uh, it's kind of two shots of happy, one shot of sad perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's helped me when I'm feeling really like I'm, I'm missing her. I'm feeling extra alone in the quiet house and my daughter's not with me. Um, and I, and I, I just appreciate how, uh, just how consistent she was. And I, yeah. I could denigrate it like, well, that's just what dogs do, you know, sort of back to like, are they feeling emotions? And like, I don't know the answers to those questions, but I do know like she was always with me and she loved me fiercely and, and she, she loved to just play with me and I loved mm-hmm. to play with her. And we had all sorts of crazy adventures uh, together. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm just extremely grateful for the time I had with her. Um, but it, it's yeah. still a process. Of grief, I mean, grief. another way to even think about it, that's maybe a little bit woo woo a little spirituality woo-woo is like if these uh, these animals, that this one species of animals co-evolved with us so closely, I mean, maybe they are kind of part of our consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe my dog is part of, I've been reading about uh, extended mind theory. Do you know anything about that? It's it it it's no just, is it related like Jung's sort of yeah it's con- it's related to like well your your mind doesn't stop at your brain mm, and one okay. of the um one of the like thought experiments that two of the leading guys in this they talk about Inga and Otto uh, Inga and Otto are pe- two different people who just live in New York City and they both hear about. Um, uh, a new exhibit at a museum downtown in Manhattan that they want to, that, you know, and so Inga hears about it and she remembers where that museum is. And so she walks through Manhattan to the museum. Otto has Alzheimer's. So he hears about it and he writes it down. And then he flips through the notebook that he keeps because he knows he has Alzheimer's and he knows he has to write stuff down or he'll forget it. 
and he flips through till he finds the uh, the museum address in his notebook, and then he walks to the museum and sees the exhibit. The point being, how do you say, how are you saying that notebook is not part of Otto's mind? It's, oh, okay. it's outside of his gray matter brain, right? And, and and now our phones act as extensions of our mind, right? Yeah, yeah. They mem- yeah, I mean, they- I can I consider like a I had a, a I destroyed my laptop and I I I made the analogy to a stroke. I said like I I have offloaded. Yeah. Oh my God, that's exactly right, Jeff. And, or just think of like all the phone numbers that your phone remembers that your, your mom just remembered those in her actual brain. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And now we don't. I hope she she donates it to science because we, that's a, that's the biggest mystery. (laughs) (laughs) All those phone numbers. Um, And so how could, I mean, maybe in that way, the dog too, it becomes, I know that when I'm hunting Mm -hmm. with one of my dogs, um, I have a true, like, I feel like we are a hunting unit. We're not two individuals yeah. hunting. We're, you know, yeah. it's like a three-legged race at, at uh, Vacation Bible School. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think, you know, we, we get this with our, our our human companions too, but, you know, you you just, you evolve all these patterns of behavior and things and you you then you recognize moods or you recognize certain certain things in your partner or they're about to do this or say this and you may not even realize it like i i was i was saying about lily like why do i know you know early on like why do i know when she's about to poop and like i i hadn't i hadn't like developed it to like this particular posture like she's she's bending down and sniffing more closely to the ground i think that's what i figured out it was it was just this this familiarity so it was kind mm-hmm. of unconscious um yeah and uh and so yeah i think but but i think unlike other animals the dogs are particularly attuned to us and so then they respond in kind and there's actually fascinating research on how uh it's not wolves you know their ancestors and it's not the go- the gorillas and the chimps that are sort of our closest relatives that can do this but like they can understand human emotions and read human faces better than any of those other other animals and so that gets back to that co-evolution right that somehow they developed that um and so we we have that un- unique bond that yeah. that makes the relationship rich but also makes this this behavioral coordination really interesting too and so hunting is a great example of yeah. you know you you have these two different roles that are completely interlocking and um you know certainly i'm sure you have certain commands and things that you give your dogs but i maybe at some point they they just know what to do or 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 there's uncertainty like a dog could do a or b and you just yeah. kind of trust the dog to do that and and you just know what he or she's going to do and right and even when my dog's do. hunting when he's out in front of me he is constantly looking back very quickly glancing back at me and you know just marking my location and which direction I'm walking and okay. stuff like that. So, oh yeah, it's very symbiotic. And, you know, you think about, obviously I have dogs that came from breeds that were bred to hunt and mm-hmm. other breeds were, you know, bred to uh, herge, you know, other breeds are wa- more like watch and guard dogs. My wife's Chihuahua, you know, they used to like, Hunt Mexican rats in tunnels. Right. That's what they look like. <laughs> I don't know what a Datsun ever did. Um, I mean, there right. are some breeds that you're like, they have been bred so far past there when they were a working species. 
species. Right. But back when our ancestors used them in those working ways, I'm sure it was even more, they felt even more in tune, you know, right. between yeah. God and human. It's a good point. So the big question every listener is going to ask is when are you getting your next dog? That's, you know, my, my daughter asked that. She also asked when she's going to get a stepmom. So it's, you know, it's this, it's this <laughs> well, <laughs> chicken or the egg, Jeff. On that exactly. Time. Well, you know, that's another thing about attachment is, you know, you with the dogs, um, we argued this is a kind of a pure test of attachment theory because you never, it's, you can't pick your kids, you know, and you can't unilaterally pick your, your spouse unless, you know, unless you're doing some kind of weird mail order bride thing um, or arranged marriage, your parents do it. Uh, but you can, you pick your dog. Right. And so that's, uh, that's interesting. So yeah, I, I go back and forth. I have an unprecedented amount of travel coming up. Um, and so there's a bit of a relief, you know, that the guilt, uh, of leaving your, your, your dog behind. And, and also I'm trying to decide, like I've, I've gotten two purebred Labradors. I can't tell you exactly why I, got a a black lab the first time but then the second time like i wanted to stick with that but then we got a female so probably the fall maybe the winter i want to kind of um last time it was sort of six months i kind of got pressured into it a little bit too soon i wasn't quite ready Mm. but then lily when we when we visited lily she was in this like concrete crate with 13 other dogs and they were all like stepping in their own poop so it was more of a like a rescue. Let's you rescue. Know? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's on the one hand, I think, Oh my goodness, if I get a dog that lives long, like I'm going to be in my seventies, like, well, what if I want to retire to Europe or so, you know, so I, I project my future too far. Uh, um, yeah. you know, I've, I've still got eight years while my, my daughter's, you know, going through school before she, she leaves the nest. So maybe I would get an older dog. Maybe I'd get a rescue dog for the okay. first time. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I'm sure I will put more time and emotional energy into it than most people. Cause I will think like that, not just, this is a, this is just the dog's going to hang out. It's like, this is a yeah. kind of a, another kind of life partner. And I, I want to get this choice, right. Yeah. You know, I, and I want to, I want to be, I want to make this dog happy, you know? So uh, it's kind of a given the dog's going to make me happy. And, but I, I want to give that dog a great life. Uh, I mean, yeah kind of a nice philosophy like if i can do that to my friends and family too but but especially if you're going to live with me i i want to make you happy so same with the dog <laughs> i'll keep that in mind if you ever ask me to move in <laughs> well yeah i will say i did not have that philosophy in height in college when i we roomed together I, so. I thought that was the first thing you said when you met me if 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 you're going to live with me i want to make you happy yeah <laughs> i can't imagine saying that but uh but ret- you know retrospect for a dog okay just not for me right i get it if we, I ever, get it. if we ever go on a trip together i will say that to you <laughs> i see where i rank in the hierarchy of of your life yeah well thanks okay i'll have you back on um when you have a puppy or a okay know, an adopted dog and then we'll talk about um i want to talk about risk and maybe yeah. i'll send you the chapter i wrote on risk Okay. And he sent me some good stuff to read about that and was helpful. Um, so that's our next episode, but we'll make sure you got a dog and okay. then we'll get an update on puppy training. Okay. Yeah. Hey, thanks for I coming mean, on. Thanks. Oh yeah. It's my pleasure. This yeah. is so much fun. Yeah.